Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn, and as always, I appreciate you listening in. Today we're going to do a few different things. may feel like a little bit of a hodgepodge, but I think it all kind of fits together, uh, and you'll see that at the end. What we're going to do is we're going to start off with some weekend news or at least some rumors that may be news. Then we're going to look a little bit more at the extradition of Ovidio Guzman, which we talked about last week. We've got some insights from a journalist, and we have some additional insights into the extradition process. Then we're going to look at three or four articles this week that particularly struck me, and struck me for this reason. From the beginning, one of our objectives in these podcast episodes was to show the nuance, to demonstrate how so many of these issues around the cartels, around drug trafficking, are nuanced far more than maybe a lot of people see, think about, or want to think about. I'm going to go through a couple of different articles that hit on different topics, but all relate to this idea that the problems confronting governments on both sides of the border with respect to the cartels and trafficking and the fentanyl crisis are far more complex and more difficult than often portrayed in the media and especially now in this election season by politicians. But we'll we'll touch on that more later on. The weekend news. With this caveat, with one exception, which will be the third thing we'll talk about, these are rumors, okay? not verified, nothing from the government to support them that I've found, but based either on the sources or the number of sources or other factors I thought they were worth discussing here, in part because they relate to the people that we've been talking about over the last 70-something episodes. So the first report from last Friday was that Rafael Caro Quintero had been transported from the Antiplano prison outside of Mexico City to a medical facility in Mexico City. And that, my friends, is the extent of what we know. Don't know, A, if it's true, but even if it is, where he went, if he's still there, or what the condition uh, that required that transportation may be. And I guess, lastly, whether it was something routine or emergency-like. So, Continue to look into that. Obviously, I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast intimately knowledgeable about Rafael Caracantero and greatly interested in seeing what happens to him. Uh, another rumor, maybe even with less credibility, but... There's a story that over the weekend, one of the sons of Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo was arrested, and he was arrested in a way where there was intense security around 
the the prison where he was taken to or the jail in the municipality where he was taken. Again, that's all the information we have. The third news from the weekend is a little bit more verifiable. Friday and Saturday, there clearly were military operations taken taking place in Culiacan. Initial rumors were that it was Mexican Marines who were after Ivan of Los Chapitos or El Nini, the uh, head of security for Los Chapitos. But after the fact, it appears that the Marines were looking for trying to get to Alfred Dio, who escaped capture, but only just barely. Again, I find it just fascinating that these people are living in in Culiacan. You know, they're right. And, and maybe it's a bigger city and you can hide more. But uh, that's where he was. You've got to believe that's close to where Ivan is. You know, a, a video was captured in Jesus Maria area of Culiacan. I've never, <laughs> I've never been a cartel leader. I've never been in hiding. It just it, it it strikes me as as fascinating that that's where they chose to hide. Okay, topic number two: the extradition of a video Guzman. We talked about it last week. This week, Annabel Hernandez, the journalist from Mexico, who now. Uh, works with the uh, Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley, posted a blog about Ovidio and the extradition. I've had some disagreements that I've stated on these podcasts with Ms. Hernandez, but her credentials, her skill, her connections to the cartel world can't be doubted. So I thought it was in, interesting information and something that we should talk about. She says that people who know Ovidio use three words to describe him. Insecure, fearful, and submissive. Probably not the three words that you would think of for somebody reputed to be head of or one of the heads of Los Chapitos, right? She goes on to say that people related to the criminal accusations against Ovidio consulted for this article revealed that during his incarceration in Mexico, Ovidio had contact with agents of the United States Anti-Drug Agency, the DEA. Keep in mind, this doesn't say that he was cooperating with the DEA. Doesn't even say that he requested them, you know, they could have shown up and said, hey, do you want to talk? And he says, get the hell out of here. So we don't know anything other than reports from people who are supposed to know say that he's talked to agents of the DEA or had contact with them. Now, when we talk about what's likely to happen going forward, you know, spinning things forward, we have to remember there are three indictments out there relating to Ovidio. There's a long-standing, long-pending case um, in federal court in Chicago 
And that's the one that he answered charges for, made his plea of not guilty last Friday. There's a second one that is in the District Court of Columbia, D.C. District Court. Happens to be the same court where El Chapo's wife, Emma Coronel, was tried. That relates to a 2018 indictment. And then remember, April of 2023, there were new charges filed in the Southern District of New York, where he also has charges pending against him. So you put all those charges together, if they go for all of them, as the government does, or even just a few of them, he's looking at a long time in prison, maybe the functional equivalent of life in prison. What does that mean? Well, Ms. Hernandez says, according to informants, the United States government expects that Ovidio prefers not to go to trial, but to reach an agreement with the Department of Justice and begin to collaborate, as did Vicente Zambada Niebla, the, uh, the son of El Mayo, El Vincentillo, Damaso Lopez Nunez, the right-hand man of El Chapo, or Sergio Villarreal Barragan, the key lieutenant of Arturo Beltran Leva, who, of course, was the head of the BLO. All of those people, you know, took uh, some type of plea deal, cooperated in some respects. On the other hand, what's not mentioned here is that her, you know, Elvidio's dad, El Chapo, stood trial. Right, we talked about that last week. Same, same lawyers, right? But what's a video going to do in those regards? She also talks a little bit about more about a video personally and says those who know a video well and have seen him perform within Los Chapitos claimed that for years he has been under the orders of his half brother, Yvonne, who, of course, is the son of El Chapo and El Chapo's first wife. Alejandrina Salazar. So you've got the two factions, right? Remember, you've got um, the the sons from the first wife, the sons from the second wife, and you're going to have some inter-family fighting here, especially with a video now in jail. She goes on to say, in most of these meetings, he didn't speak or give his opinions. He just nodded his head to follow Yvonne's instructions. He is classified as very nervous and reserved, and during his life, he has constantly required psychological therapy due to the high levels of stress he suffers from. Then she goes on, and I think this this is important. We talked about it at the time that it happened, but she says, as I revealed last January in this space, in the second capture operation carried out in the town of Jesus Maria, a ranch in the municipality of Culiacan, Ovidio had managed to escape despite the fact that the house where he was with his wife and daughters was under fire. But he returned when his wife, Adriana, called him to tell him that the house was still being attacked and that one of his daughters was having a nervous breakdown. Thus, she says with some journalistic eloquence, thus the mouse who had managed to sneak away returned and fell into the mousetrap. 
Lastly, she says, after his arrest in January, it's said that Ovidio was resentful towards his half-brothers, Ivan and Alfredo, and has complained that he was abandoned. Insight Crime had an article regarding Ovidio's extradition process as well. And there's a couple of pieces I want to pull out from there. Remember last week, we talked about the unusual nature of Ovidio's extradition because it went so fast. From Insight Crime, Sherry Walker Hobson a former U.S. assistant attorney who prosecuted numerous fentanyl cases said it moved faster than cases she worked on in recent years. Quote, I've prosecuted Mexican cartel members who were pending extradition in Mexico for years before their ultimate extradition to the United States. So this expedited extradition of Ovidio is definitely strategic and political. Insight. Crime goes on to say, notably, following the extradition, U.S. authorities applauded the Mexican government. Quote, we thank our Mexican counterparts for their partnership in working to safeguard our peoples from violent criminals. And that quote is attributed to the White House Homeland Security Advisor, Dr. Liz Sherwood Randall. And Insight Crime says it is one of many U.S. statements lauding Mexico efforts. Somebody we've talked about in the past, Vanda Felbub Brown, a Brookings Institute scholar. She's the one, remember we talked about kind of the internal workings and the structure of CDS and CJNG and how they approach things differently. And we did a compare and contrast. A lot of that information started with a couple of articles written by uh, Ms. Felbub Brown. So she says, and in quoting her from Insight Crime, is it good that Ovidio was captured and extradited? Absolutely. But I don't believe it's a fundamental reset in the relationship between the United States and Mexico. This is the minimum necessary to be able to demonstrate that there is cooperation. Okay, so... That's Ovidio. That's the news. Now I want to look at a couple of articles that touch on the cartels and the governments on both sides of the border in somewhat different ways, but I think they are very interesting and and worth talking about. So the first is an article that actually comes believe it or not, from the Louisville Carrier Journal. It's written by two Mexican journalists who have affiliations with this newspaper. The title of the article is Thrust into Cartel Life. And it starts essentially with this paragraph. I had to burn some guys alive. That was my first task. The 18-year-old said with some excitement in his voice, recalling his first assignment in a Mexican cartel. We were chilling out, and two hours later, they brought them. We tied them up and sprayed them with gasoline and then fire. It smelled terrible. 
he recounted while eating tacos and drinking Coke in downtown Morelia. He said he was 15 when he was formally hired by CJNG. He said he had no other path and started as a Halcon or a street-level informant. Then he began to advance, and he's now a full-time hitman for one of the most brutal cartels in the world. The article goes on to talk about this idea of recruitment and, and cites to the Network for Children's Rights in Mexico, which estimates that about 35,000 youths have been recruited by organized crime in the country and about 400,000 more are at risk of being recruited. And that statistic is a, is a moving target, says uh, one of the coordinators. We're talking about an annual estimate because adolescents turn 18 and can no longer be considered in that statistic. One of the things this article points out is the direct connection between poverty, a lack of economic... Um, abilities, a lack of economic expectations, and membership in or working for cartels. From the article, while Mexico has seen recent improvements in its poverty rates, the latest figures for the National Council for the Evaluation of Social Development Policy show nearly half, 43 0.5% of the population living in poverty in 2022. Mexico-based experts say inequality, lack of opportunities, poverty, and other factors fuel cartel numbers in rural Mexico. Quote, the state is not capable of generating conditions of well-being in the young persons, even if they come from an impoverished society from a fragmented family, they aspire because aspiration is never lost. The human beings always aspire, said Ruben Ramirez, a professor and researcher at the National Autonomous University of Mexico. This um, CJNG member that was referred to in that first paragraph says, let's be honest, to make money is really hard. I can't say how much I make, but it's definitely more than what a doctor does here in Mexico. So even if that's a little bit of puffing, you still see the disconnect, right? Where are you going to make money in rural Mexico? And and go way back. Remember, that's kind of how a lot of the marijuana people started, right? Rafael Caracantero, Fonseca, you know, some of the ones before them. What else were they going to do to make money? So they go on to say, Drug cartels have now deeply penetrated Mexico's society, particularly in rural areas. They get involved in elections. They donate food and money to local families. They have, in many cases, filled the blank spaces that the state has left and children are watching. Another quote from Dr. Ramirez. For many years in this process of socialization, the children manifest that, that in their adult life. They would like to be hitmen. They would like to be members of the cartels because they are observing and analyzing it as a possibility, a possibility to aspire to something illegal because the economic 
and political system does not offer such possibilities. In Michoa Khan, the main topic in parties and meetings is the drug war. So it's what these kids see in their life since they were born. Interestingly enough, child recruitment is not a crime in Mexico, but apparently they've been trying for years to, to make it a crime, but haven't been able to do so. The Committee on Rights of the Child in the United Nations has said, Beyond whether there are 30,000 or 100,000 recruiting children, the state continues to fail because there is no way to protect them as long as the crime is not classified in the penal code and there are no programs or budget to attend to the victims. The uh, Courier-Journal does have a quote here from a CJNG chief commander who apparently said, sometimes there is forced recruitment in specific cases, but we usually don't mess with innocence. I'm not sure if you want to believe that or not, or if it's a factor that they don't really have to because of the economic conditions that we've previously talked about. Speaking of the economic conditions... The Hill had an article that talks about a study, a study that was uh, was published last Thursday in the journal Science. Okay, so that's a a reputable journal done by reputable academics in Mexico. The headline point for this study is that Mexican cartels have seen a surge in growth in their participating members over the last decade to the point where they have effectively become the nation's fifth largest employer. Researchers created a mathematical model using homicide, missing persons, and incarceration data to track cartel recruitment. Their study found that some 175,000 people in Mexico are employed by 150 different cartel groups. The researchers said they hope their study can help analysts and governments who have long struggled to understand cartels and find a better way out of the cycle of violence. The Hill notes that in an unrelated report from the DEA in July, there was an estimation that the Sinaloa and CJNG cartels each employed more than 45,000 people. The model, um, oh, I'm sorry, I think I said that wrong, that between... CDS and CJNG, 45,000. And that was almost the exact same number that this study came up with using their particular algorithm. The researchers said that in the last 10 years, 37% of known cartel members have been killed or incarcerated, and yet the size of the cartels continues to grow. The cartels have to recruit nearly 20,000 new members a year 
just to make up for losses. The article or the report itself says, look, this model only accounts for those directly involved in work that puts them at risk of violence and not members such as bankers who help move and launder the cartel's money. A researcher, Victoria Dittmar, had or touched on this and says it can be very difficult to say who is a member of a criminal organization and who isn't. What about a politician who receives money or someone who cooperates with the group just once or a few times? Other research researchers have lauded the study and that it's a breakthrough because prior attempts to fight organized crime and the cartels behind that crime have failed. The study shows that combating crime starts with decreasing the cartel's ability to recruit new members. At least we know we have to focus on that question rather than just sending more money to armed forces and building more prisons, said Carlos Gershenson a computer scientist at Binghamton University. You need to cut the source of the problem rather than just dealing with the consequences. And that goes back to what we were saying earlier. There are lots of different ways that you can look at this. There are lots of fingers you can point. But one of the areas that clearly isn't getting enough attention is how do you prevent Or how do you stop the flow of new members into cartels? How do you stop the flow of kids with no prospects? Children who've seen cartels their whole lives who move into the cartels. And I think a little bit about, you know, I hate to draw the parallel, but sometimes it just springs to mind, you know, kids who grew up in certain areas in, in let's say New York and saw the mafia all the time and aspired to that. You know, what's the line from Goodfellas all my life. I wanted to be a wise guy, you know, so that's something that has to be addressed. Do you need to have the military? Yes. Do you need more prisons? Maybe. Do you need different criminal sentences? Maybe. But there's also the underlying problem you know, of these youth. And I go back to things that I've said, and I've had people comment on this and um, probably (laughs) I'm not convincing many people, but we also in the United States need to find a way to address the problem of demand in addition to the problem of supply, right? If tomorrow there was no demand, even though that's never going to happen, the drugs would stop flowing. If you want to slow down drugs, you can build bigger fences, you can have more military, and you could also have fewer people want to do it. And saying, you know, just say no from Nancy Reagan isn't a policy to address the demand issue. All right. Third article I wanted to discuss comes from Newsweek, and it's actually an opinion 
piece from Newsweek, and it's titled America Must Help Mexico Curb Cartel Violence. It's from Connor Pfeiffer, who's the executive director of the Forum for American Leadership, which I'll admit I'd never heard of. So I looked them up. Since 2017, the Forum for American Leadership, its website says, has brought together the leaders of the conservative national security movement. We we advance, I'm sorry, America's role as an active global leader and defender of liberty with a strong military and proudly pro-free and fair trade agenda. Mr. Pfeiffer, the executive director and the author of this opinion piece, is a 2018 graduate of Princeton University with a BA in history, magna cum laude. He also had served um, several posts, most recently as a senior legislative assistant for Representative Will Hurd, a Republican from Texas who is running for president, even though he didn't make it on the stage of the first debate. Heard himself as a former CIA officer with cybersecurity experience. So after discussing a little bit of the, the recent violence in Mexico, Mr. Pfeiffer's opinion says, this headline-grabbing violence has cha- challenged assurances from Mexican President Obrador that his security policy of hugs, not bullets is working. The violence is symptomatic of the government's lack of effective control over parts of the country. It also creates major problems for the United States, a power vacuum that criminal groups exploit to produce fentanyl and traffic drugs and people over the U.S. border, while continued insecurity endangers lives and threatens Mexico's long-term social and economic potential. The Biden administration and the Mexican government have not made significant process in addressing insecurity in Mexico. President Lopez Obrador's response has been lackluster and in some question or some cases raised questions about ties between officials in his party and criminal groups. He then says the Mexican president also goes out of his way to downplay security challenges. When U.S. officials pointed out that the Sinaloa and CJNG cartels combined have more than 44,000 affiliates worldwide, AMLO directed his anger at the United States, not at the growing reach of these groups. And when a national commission announced that a staggering 110,000 people are known to be missing in Mexico, AMLO said that he would conduct his own sentence that would lower the count, leading to the resignation of the commission's chair. As you could imagine, given Mr. Pfeiffer's credentials, he has some strong words for the Biden administration as well. The Biden administration's response has been to go along with AMLO's rejection of past bilateral security efforts, such as the Merida Initiative, and to replace them with the Bicentennial Framework for Security, Public Health, and Safe Communities. While the initiative is heavy on meetings touting its success, homicides and drug trafficking continue to worsen, 
and the United States does not have operational control of its border. As a recent Center for Strategic and International Studies report noted, the bicentennial framework has been hampered by reduced operational security cooperation between the United States and Mexico. Additionally, its focus on high-profile raids against leaders of criminal organizations often lacks any follow-through that meaningfully degrades the cartel's capacity to traffic drugs or grow their territorial footprint. And certainly we've seen that with CDS, right? I mean, effectively, what what really happened? How did the flow of drugs into the United States materially change in a beneficial way since El Chapo was extradited to the United States, since Ovidio was arrested? And we could go on and on and on with that. So he comes down to to two basic principles of what he says should be done. First, he says, strengthening enforcement of existing U.S. laws against straw purchases and unlicensed arm dealing and increasing outbound ex- inspections at the border can help reduce the number of we- weapons that end up in the hands of cartels. Mexico must also crack down on corruption and security forces. Washington needs a holistic approach to the relationship with Mexico that recognizes the linkages between economic and security issues. Deeper economic integration will not be politically sustainable without real progress on security. In future high-level dialogues between the two governments, increasing bilateral cooperation to stem the flow of drugs and people north must be at the top of the agenda Business as usual will no longer cut it. We've talked before, and I'm sure you've seen lots of press reports, the the economic ties between the United States and Mexico, principally along the northern border, but certainly not exclusively, are going to continue to grow. If not exponentially, significantly. And... That puts a different type of pressure on all parties, right? Even um, irrespective of your thoughts on exactly what Mr. Pfeiffer says here, the benefit of this is understanding or recognizing that you have several competing interests. You have national security interests. You have internal security interests. You have economic interests, and you have political interests, and there's probably half a dozen more that we could think of very quickly. And all of those need to be considered, if not addressed, as part of any bilateral effort to understand where... Um, there is room and possibilities for real meaningful progress. One of the things that, that is frustrating to me is that certain events get touted as being very significant and, uh, you know, politicians, security forces, 
sometimes agencies of the U.S. government are very, very quick to shout, aha, victory. But really, it doesn't, it, it's, a, it's a Pyrrhic victory at best. And another example of that is last week, um, Z43, who was one of the last leaders of Los Zetas, and probably the last of the numbered leaders to either be incarcerated or killed, pled guilty to a variety of charges. And the United States Attorney for the Southern District of Texas put out a press release touting how great it was that they were able to catch him and saying, you know, this is a major dent in trafficking. And um, and he had this kind of little video that went with it, which in my opinion was really awful. Um, it looked like a bad campaign ad for a congressman. But, um, but what struck me is... The Zetas haven't been a force for several years. So touting that one of their last leaders has now pled guilty and saying how this is a credible victory in the war on drugs is nonsensical to me. And again, I understand the political reasons for it. Okay. And so this isn't a criticism. It's simply to recognize, you you know, the Zetas went away. All disease <laughs> went away. You've, you've got others, you know, the the Knights Templar, La Familia Michoacana at one point, AFO was degraded, BLO went away. And yet, you're left in a situation where you've got CJNG that now have 44,000 sub cartels working under them you've got you know a resurgence in Tijuana you've got battles in a variety of states you've got cartels with influences in in southern or in South America and in Europe and in Australia to say it's a great victory because we got one guy for from a cartel who does, that doesn't even exist anymore shows that we are putting our fingers in the dike and not addressing the problem, right? Okay, that was a little bit more of a rant than I intended. I'm really fascinated by this discussion. And if anybody out there has contrary thoughts, additional thoughts, I've heard from some of you, some of you who thoroughly disagree with some of my views, and that's fine. I, I, I'm happy to discuss it with anybody, but I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to have you come on, send questions, come on the podcast, talk to me next week. We can talk about these issues, whatever. Um, I'm, I'm, like I say, I just I find this extremely interesting from an intellectual level, and very frustrating from an emotional level. Before we go, check out the newsletter. Again, a lot of the stuff that we talked about today was in the newsletter, but there's lots of other stuff. I, it's a quick read. I think you would really enjoy it. If you like the podcast, you'd like that. Um, keep looking for stuff on YouTube. 
Second book goes to the publisher in 38 days or less. <laughs> so wish me luck. And that will do it for Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena for this week. We will talk to you next weekend. Have a good week.